0: To see you. Uh, If you don't know me, I've been on staff for a while. Kyle Richter, one of the directors of Veritas. Uh, I've been on staff for a while, so it's exciting to be here. Hey, uh, if you know anything about me, you know that I'm married uh, to a beautiful wife, Noelle, and I have three children uh, Lily, Lucy, and Jack, two girls and a boy, if you couldn't figure that out. Um, Recently, my wife, Noelle, and I have been. Teaching our oldest daughter Lily, she's a little over three. We've been teaching her how to pray. Uh, it's cute um, because on any given day, Lily's prayers typically consist of something about her blankie, something about her stuffed animals, Cinderella, of course, on an else sorry. Jesus, get, um, you know, occasionally mommy and daddy get some love, Jack, Lucy, sorry. Jesus gets slipped in every once in a while. Uh, And of course, it's adorable, right? It's adorable for me to watch my little girl pray, but what Noelle and I have realized is that we've had to learn, we've had to teach her how to pray, and we're starting to teach her what to pray for. So that's what my my daughter prays for. What does America pray for? Well, according to a study done in 2014 by Lifeway Research, among Americans who pray, these are the things that we typically pray for, 82%. Pray to God about the needs of family and friends. 54% for future prosperity, about good things happening in their lives. 36% pray for future prosperity. 21% admitted to praying that they would win the lottery. 13% that their favorite sports team would win. And 7% that they would find a good parking spot. I'm sure some of us can relate to that. But what about you? As you're sitting there, as you're thinking, as you're listening to what I'm saying, if you're somebody who prays, what do you pray for? If you had to be honest and, and, and tell others around you, what are the things that you most often pray for? What would that be? Would it be for things to go well in your life? Friends. That you would get something you want. A grade. Friends. Boyfriend. Girlfriend. A job. Would it be about stress and anxiety? You guys are college students. You're stressed. I get it. Maybe good health. You see, my point isn't that these things are bad. These things aren't inherently bad. They're not wrong to pray for. But my point is, is that our prayers reveal what's important to us. You see, when we pray, it's kind of like we're putting our poker hand down on the table and we're showing our hand. God, this is what I've got. God, this is where my priorities lie. Our most important question is, are the things that we're most concerned with, the things that are most important to us, our priorities, are they the same as God's? You see, I'd like to suggest that when it comes to prayer, we're often most concerned with our circumstances. But God is most concerned with our spiritual growth, the welfare of our souls, you see, we like to focus on the external, whereas God is first concerned with the internal, with our hearts. So if that's true, how do we change our priorities? How do we align ourselves with what's important to God? Well, to start, I think that it means what Paul does in our past, and we learn what to pray for And as it turns out, that's exactly what Paul does in our passage tonight. We see a prayer of his. We read a prayer of his to the Ephesian church, to his readers. And we see Paul in this prayer model how to pray and what to pray for. Before we jump into the passage, speaking of prayer, let me pray for us. Jesus, what a delight it is to be here tonight. God, would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to the beauty and truth of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so how should we pray according to Paul in Ephesians 3? Verse 14 through 15. Family in heaven and all says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Okay, so so Paul begins this verse with, with the words, for this reason. In other words, Paul has been reflecting on something right before this that motivates what he's getting ready to say. And that thing that he's been reflecting on is what Patrick, if you were here last week, is what Patrick talked about. Verses two through 13, God's incomparably great and unexpected plan, it saves us and it brings us into a relationship with God. Paul knows that God's unexpected plan gives him, it gives us access and moves him to pray. This is Christ. And to Paul, that's really good news. And it moves him to pray. I came across a a Tim Keller quote the other day. Tim Keller's a pastor up in New York. Um, We talk about him a lot. This is what he says. He says, if you read the Bible and and aren't moved to pray, you should probably go back and read it because it's likely you didn't understand what you read. You, You get what he's saying there? You see, I'll confess, that's me a lot. That's because when I read my Bible, sometimes it's more about checking off something on a list than actually trying to understand and connect what I'm reading. On Jesus, thinking Paul, at least in Ephesians 3, doesn't have that problem. Because dwelling on Jesus, thinking, reflecting on the gospel, it leads him to pray, and it leads him to pray in a particular way. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, what's interesting about Paul saying this is that that, uh, Jews and early Christians didn't often kneel when they prayed. Actually, most of the time, it was more common for them to stand while praying. That's why we see in in Luke 18, Jesus is telling a parable of two men, a Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader, and, and a tax collector. And he's talking about their differing prayers to God, and he acknowledges that they're both standing as they're doing that. He says, when you pray Mark 11, Jesus is talking to his closest friends, his disciples, and he says, when you pray, standing, dot, dot, dot. See, Jesus assumes that when they're praying, they're standing. So why then, if it was expected or at least common to stand while praying, would Paul say here, he kneels? Well, because kneeling for Paul was a sign of reverence, a sign of submission. Paul is modeling for his readers humility, humility. It's as if he's saying he's so aware of his need before God that he couldn't even stand upright before him. So, thinking about the gospel, reflecting on this of reverence and submission, compels Paul to pray, but not just any old way. No, it compels him to pray with a sense of reverence and submission and a sense of humility before God, who, the one through whom every family, he says, in heaven and on earth, derives its name. As I was thinking about Paul saying and doing this, I couldn't help but think of the whole Jesus is my homeboy movement. Um, surely you've heard that phrase. I hope I'm not dating myself too much. But if you haven't or you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you've seen that picture that's not there. There it is. Uh, it's, it's this idea, right? Like this gets put all over t-shirts and hats and coffee mugs and I don't know, probably the internet, whatever else. Uh, but the idea of he is my homeboy, it conveys that, you know, Jesus is just one of the bros right? Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is just a dude, down to do dude stuff, whatever the heck that is. And on the one hand, I get it, right? That, that, that's kind of funny. I, I mean, I understand the point that it's trying to make, because the Bible, after all, teaches us that because of Jesus's death and resurrection, that we actually have intimate access to God, that God desires a personal relationship with us. That's why Jesus is described as friend sometimes in the Gospels, You see, God loves us. God accepts us. And so we get to approach God, relate to Him as we approach other relationships in our life. That God isn't just. So God is friend, but the Bible also tells us that God isn't just our homeboy. God is Lord. Jesus is King. He's the true King, He's the one ruling with power and authority. And so Paul says that because God is the Lord of my life, I get down on my knees and I pray. Is that how you think about prayer? Or is prayer just kind of flippant in your life? Do you take God for granted when you pray? Are you, this is true of me, are you distracted when you pray? Too busy to devote any serious? You see, Paul do you even think it's worth praying? You see, Paul does. And I don't think Paul is saying the only proper way is to pray on our knees. I mean, after all, there are other instances in the Bible of people not doing that. But I do think that he's suggesting that when we are praying, we're praying more than to just our homeboy. You see, when the good news of God's unexpected plan sinks in, it changes the posture of of our hearts before God, and it leads us to pray. Okay, so that's that's how we pray. What do we pray for? Paul t- teaches us three things in the next set of verses. First thing, Ephesians 17. Paul says, I pray out of God's glorious riches, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So so first, Paul says. Paul is praying that God would strengthen his readers inwardly with power through His spirit. In other words, he's saying that the strength that Christians need to live faithfully comes not from ourselves, not from our own efforts, not from our abilities, but through the Spirit's work and power in our hearts. You see, we as Christians need God's help in our lives, and it's actually very private. Paul, healthy and dangerous when we start to think that we don't. Paul prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, meaning that that Christ would take up residence in our hearts, that he would make his home there. And as Jesus makes his home in our hearts, he becomes the center of our choices, our affections, our thoughts, our behavior. What about you? Is that true of you? I mean, if you call yourself a Christian, if you're a Christian, is Jesus at the center of everything you do? Your choices, your likes, your dislikes, your relay means words. You see, having Jesus at the center of our lives means before changing our major, we stop and ask the question, Jesus, what do you want? It means before getting into a relationship with someone, we ask, well, what do you want, Jesus? It means when we struggle with sin, if Jesus is at the center of our lives, we remember that sin is primarily against Jesus, not somebody else. See, again, I'll admit, far too often, this is, this is not true of me. See, Jesus isn't always at the center of my life. I like to keep him off to the side. I treat him like a vending machine. Over here, off to the side until I get into a jam and I need him for something. I treat him like a vending machine. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, I'm thirsty. Oh, I want that. You see, if you can relate to that, Paul says that a really good place for us to start in our prayers is that Jesus would dwell in our hearts, that he would change us, that he would transform us from the inside out. That's the first thing Paul says. Second, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. Paul says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep this substance of and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So what's this substance of of this inside out transformation that Paul prays for in the lives of his readers? Well, it's none other than and the sacrificial love of Jesus. The love that brought Jesus to the cross, to death, to save sinners like you and me. You see, Paul says that God's love in Christ is the soil in which we are rooted in and grow out of, it's the foundation upon which we are built. So think about a tree for a second. A healthy tree can't grow withstand a strong storm. Or think about a house. A house can't withstand a strong storm without a solid foundation. You see, that's Paul's point. In order for Christians to grow, in order for us to withstand the storms that will most certainly come in our lives, we have to know the love of Jesus. Okay, but here's the deal. Paul isn't just praying that his readers would know Jesus' love intellectually. No, Paul is praying that they would experience it. You see, in a lot of ways, Paul is actually praying for things he's already told his readers that are true of them. So why significant difference? The things that he's saying right now, it's because Paul knows that there is a significant difference between knowing and experiencing Jesus. So think about honey, right? Honey's sweet, right? I mean, even if, you've, even if you've never had honey before, you know that that honey is sweet because I or somebody else has already told you that it is. So intellectually with your head, you know that honey is sweet. You're able to talk about it, to describe it, to tell somebody else what honey is like, at least to an extent. But unless you've put honey in your mouth, Unless you've tasted it, unless it's rolled over your tongue and you've experienced the sweetness for your, you didn't really fully know what honey is like. You see, you knew, but you didn't really know. Notice what Paul says. His word choice in verse eighteen. He's not praying that his readers would know how wide. And long and high and deep. He's not praying that his readers would believe how wide and long and high and deep. No, Paul prays that they would grasp how high and deep and wide and long. You see, that word grasp in the original Greek. Um, it, it's kind of an interesting word. It, it means something like to wrestle, of sacking. Or, and so in military context, it's used with the sense of, of sacking or, or overpowering a city, literally wrestling it to the ground. And so when Paul urges his readers to grasp the love, the vastness of God's love in Jesus, he's not suggesting that we try to overpower God. He's not suggesting that we wrestle with God. Though I will say in other parts of the Bible, prayer is talked about like that. Like uh, someone wrestling with God. That's not what Paul is talking about here. No, Paul here is saying that to grasp the vastness of the love of Jesus is to wrestle it deep down into our heart. To experience it, to become familiar with it firsthand. You see, some of us in here intellectually know who God is. We intellectually understand. We know with our head what God is like. We've learned things about him. We'll probably keep learning things about him. Maybe we'll even teach others what we're learning, what God is like. But if we're honest, that's the extent of our understanding of God. It's, it's rational. It's intellectual. It's, dare I say, lifeless, dangerous. You see, if that's you... If I'm kind of describing where you're at right now, hear me when I say this. I have. With God gets reduced. See, in a lot of ways, I still am. My relationship with God gets reduced to what I know about Him rather than my experience of Him. But Paul knows that knowing God deeply involves more than just our intellect, it involves our emotions, it involves our feelings, it involves our senses. It involves our whole being. That's why King David plays on our senses in Psalm 34 when he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, to to taste and see that the Lord is good is to experience deeply requires. And so Paul is saying that, that knowing God deeply requires an experience with him. I'm not talking about I don't want to be confusing here. I'm not talking about chasing, you know, this mountaintop mission trip experience that you get when you go on something like that. I'm not talking about chasing the emotional highs that sometimes we get at a worship night, getting our our Jesus buzz that, you know, eventually fades away. No, what I'm saying, and what I think Paul is saying, is that we can't fully know who God is unless we have unless we are, and unless we continue to experience a personal, how do we with him? So how do we know, how do we know if we're relating to God intellectually, or if we're experiencing what Paul is calling us to, a relationship? You see, there's so much that I could say that we just don't have time to cover, but here are a few questions to help us start answering that question. Do you trust the care of your good father in heaven? Or are you consistently plagued by fear and anxiety and worry about your circumstances? Do you trust God as the giver of all good gifts most prone to grumbling about what you don't have? Do you find refuge in God's forgiveness in Christ or are you overwhelmed with shame and guilt for the things that you've done see Paul's prayer here is that we would grasp that we would wrestle that we would experience on a deeply personal level how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus and so we have to ask is that us Paul is writing to Christians is that us do you experience a love so wide, Americans, that Jews and Gentiles, blacks, whites, Asians, Americans, Greek students, non-Greek students, hipsters, athletes, whatever, a love that will not exclude you? Do you experience a love so long that it began before the foundations of the world, a love that will never, abandon you? Do you experience a love so high that it not only rescues you from the pit of hell, but it exalts you to the highest heights of heaven with Jesus? And do you experience a love so deep that Jesus went to the cross, that Jesus willingly suffered and died, and in that moment, we sang this earlier, the Father turned his face away. You see, Jesus' love is wide and long and high and deep. And when Paul prays that that his love, Jesus' love surpasses knowledge, he's not saying that his love is unknowable. No, but what he's saying is that Jesus' love for his people, it's so great that it can never be fully known. It's not going to run out. We can't possibly exhaust it. So I learned something uh, this week uh, is, is um, the deepest part of the ocean uh, is, is known to man, um, is the Challenger Deep. It's in the Marina Trench, which is in the Pacific Ocean. It's actually off kind of southwest coast of Japan, southeast. Um, get this. Get how deep it is. If we were to put Mount Everest, yeah, you can't really tell. The, the, the trench is over here. That's Mount Everest. If we were to put Mount Everest in this trench, the peak of Mount. Everest would still be a mile beneath the surface of the water. At the top there, you can see a commercial airliner typically flies at 35,000 feet. It would still be 1,000 feet. And as you that's amazing. And as you can imagine, water that deep, you know, when you get to the bottom, the the water pressure is so crushing that it's nearly impossible to survive. But just because we can't fully plumb the depths of this trench, it doesn't mean that we can't experience. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy. It doesn't mean that we can't explore the waters closer to the top. You see, this side of heaven, we can't begin to comprehend the vastness of God's love for us in Jesus. No matter how much we know, no matter how long we've been in a relationship with him, there will always be God to know and to experience. Paul is praying that, that Christians would be strengthened inwardly the power of the Spirit, to grasp more deeply the love of Jesus. Why? Well, third thing he prays for, Ephesians 3.19. So that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In other words, Paul is finishing his prayer to his readers by expressing his desire to see a relationship with Jesus actually change their lives, you see, if our experience of God is nothing more than, than a temporary emotional high, I'll confess to something to have any lasting effects in our lives. I'll, I'll confess to something um, embarrassing. Um, I, I'm not a crier. Uh, if you're a crier, I'm not mad about it. Um, I'm just not a crier. That's not what I'm confessing. Um, what I'm confessing um, is, is the thing that makes me cry often, um, and that's a TV show called Undercover Boss. Um, it's incredibly dorky. It's it's actually a little bit absurd, but anybody on our staff team knows this is true, because I frequently talk about crying in in, in undercover boss. And and so if you have no idea what I'm talking about, undercover boss is this TV show where uh, rich CEOs kind of go undercover. The, the show, you know, with like the the lower people in the company, like, um, and so the the show, you know. It's kind of this, this experience of the CEO kind of getting down in the trenches and, and he's, he's, you know, meeting his, his employees and he's talking with them. He's learning about them. He's hearing their stories. And a lot of times there's brokenness in their stories. And so the show kind of works to this climactic unfolding of, aha, I'm the CEO. And they're like, whoa, you know. So... Um, you know, they talk, you know, about how, you know, powerful their, their story is to the CEO. And, and often what happens is the CEO gives like thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars to the person. You know, so I, I'm crying. I, I, the generosity of the CEO. Um, I'm a dork, whatever. was like, what are you doing, Colin? I'm <laughs> you know. um, crying, So I cry when I watch Undercover Boss because it's emotional. The other day, I got the best thing in the world. I got two boxes of Thin Mint cookies. You guys like Thin Mints? Um, well, Thin Mints are a big deal around my house because I love desserts. I love sweets. And so I, I go into the kitchen where these boxes of Thin Mints are, and, and I see them on the table, and I decide to do a very th- smart thing, in my opinion, at the time. I'm going to hide a box of these cookies from my wife so that she thinks we only have one box so that I can have the other box all to myself, <laughs> right? Right? Good idea at the time, but do you see the irony of cookies from my wife? Watching Undercover Boss at the generosity of a CEO, and I'm literally stealing cookies from my wife? <laughs> like this emotional thing, you know, doesn't have any lasting effect on me. Emotions are good, but emotional experiences don't always bring lasting change. And that's why Paul is praying for a relationship not an experience. Having a relationship with Jesus, it transforms, it changes the way that we live. If you were at our conference this past weekend, you might have heard Scott Saul say something uh, that was striking for me. He, he called Christians, he referred to Christians as, as incomplete, look at our lives, progress. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that when we look at our lives, there's a lot of work to do. Incomplete works and in progress. Paul gets this. And that's exactly why he's praying for the Spirit to work powerfully in their lives. He wants his readers to experience a relationship with Jesus because Paul knows that when we do, real change starts happening, transformation occurs, our lives begin to look different. And of course, that change is often gradual. It's never perfect. But we can be sure that it's permanent because it's a work of God. These of things... is that your prayer? Are these the kinds of things that, that you find yourself praying for, that God would change your hearts, that God would work powerfully in your life to help you experience a relationship with Him, to bring transformation. Or is God just another checklist? something to know about? Something we occasionally pay attention to, you know, but our lack of relationship doesn't really bring any sort of lasting change. You see, if that's you, and, and I can assure you, at times it is—it is me for sure. The good news is that Jesus has loved you. He's invite far away. See, Jesus wants a relationship with you. He's inviting you to experience Him in a way that changes your life forever. And so Paul is praying for these Christians, and he he prays these three things, that they would be strengthened by the power of the Spirit, that they would experience the vastness of Jesus' love, and that real transformation and spiritual maturity would happen in their lives. Do you notice what he doesn't pray for? Circumstances. Paul, in these verses, is not praying for prosperity. Prosperity. He's not praying against anxiety because his readers don't. He's not praying for good health. It it can't be because his readers don't have these issues, right? Surely his readers would have had these things going on in their lives. Surely their lives would have been stressful like ours. Surely they would have wanted to be successful like we do. Surely they would have cared about their own health and the well-being of their family members just like we do. See, those, those prayers aren't, aren't bad prayers at all. In fact, in other places, the Bible invites us to pray for those things. Jesus invites us to pray for those things. Well, then why isn't Paul praying for those things here in Ephesians 3? I think it's because Paul knows that if his readers experience over their, their circling relationship with Jesus, if they prioritize their spiritual life over their, their circumstances then Paul knows that they'll have everything they need and they'll be able with the power of God at work in their life to handle whatever comes their way. So as the music team comes up, let me end with this. Patrick asked a question last night, last week. I thought it was a good one. He said, are you bored with Jesus? Are you guys bored with Jesus? I want to ask a similar question. Is your relationship with Jesus dry? If you're honest, is it lifeless? If you're honest, do you just know Jesus with your head or do you know him? And I mean really know what it means to experience a relationship with him in your heart. You see, Jesus is inviting you. He desires for you. He wants you to experience the width, the length, the height, and the depth of his love for you. So do you experience that love? Do you want to? See, Paul is imploring you to pray to your Father in heaven, have because we do not your prayers. James 4:2 tells us that, that a lot of times we do not have because we do not ask. So ask. Ask. Jesus to experience a deeper relationship with him. Even when it feels feels silly, even when it feels impossible, ask. Ask. Because Paul says God is the only one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Because of the power, his power that is at work within us. To God, this is how Paul ends. To God be glory in the church. Amen. Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.